It's a wonderful privilege and a slight anomaly for me to have the opportunity to introduce Lord Michael Heseltine to you. Lord Heseltine has been one of the preeminent figures in British politics for uh, at least four decades. Um, And in fact, he has been a key leader in business as well as politics for longer than that. I'm a complete newcomer and outsider. But it's a delight to have Michael Heseltine at the LSE. Lord Heseltine was first elected to Parliament in 1966 as the member for Tavistock in Devon before moving to Henley in Oxfordshire in 1974. I think that was with the abolition of a constituency yeah. in that change. He created his own publishing business and is one of a limited number of parliamentarians with such experience. He reports in various of his autobiographical comments that this was a struggle as well as a success and that he's learned the different sides of business, which I think is an invaluable experience. He was a minister in the Heath government from 1970 to 74 and joined Mrs. Thatcher's cabinet in 1979 as Secretary of State for the Environment, a post he held again in John Major's government from 1990 to 1992. While Secretary of State for the Environment, Lord Heseltine developed distinctive policies toward urban regeneration, In particular, he created development corporations in London Docklands and Merseyside and was responsible for the use of challenge funding to incentivize localities to put forward proposals for the regeneration of former industrial city areas. These policies are still highly influential today. During Mrs. Thatcher's government, he was also Secretary of State for Defense, a post from which he famously resigned over the Westland Affair a disagreement within government about the future of Britain's helicopter industry, among other things. Walking out of a cabinet meeting, famously, and announcing what he had done live to the media in the street outside. Later, in Major's government, Heseltine became the president of the Board of Trade, a cabinet post with responsibility for the UK's trade and industry policy. He memorably stated that he would intervene, and I quote, before breakfast, dinner, and tea to help British companies. He continues to articulate a significantly more interventionist approach to industry than many British politicians, not only in the Conservative Policy Party. He is an advocate for industrial policy. He is an advocate for growth in Britain. Following Sir Geoffrey Howe's resignation speech on 13 November 1990, Michael Heseltine announced his candidacy for the leadership of the Conservative Party, a decision that precipitated Mrs. Thatcher's resignation. In the event John Major became Conservative leader and Prime Minister, Michael Heseltine returned to government as a minister. He has long been one of the Conservative Party's leading orators. He has also been strongly pro-Europe in a party that has powerful Eurosceptic leanings. His recent report, No Stone Unturned, published last month, was commissioned by David Cameron. It is a cogent and rounded view of Britain's need for a consistent industrial policy underpinned by powerful city and local leadership. It is an argument not only for creating wealth in Britain, but for creating it through a plurality of local economies in Britain and enterprise at different scales. Its publication was supported by both the CBI and the TUC, a rare event 
indeed. Tonight, Lord Heseltine will expand on the views in his report. It is a privilege for all of us. There will be an opportunity for questions at the end. And may I remind all of you that we hope that you will do what I did not do and state your name. You can do it like this. I'm Craig Calhoun. Only you should use your own name. (laughs) Wait for the stewards in the red shirts to come to you with the microphone so that you can be heard, recorded for the podcast. The Twitter hashtag for those who use Twitter is hash LSE Hazeltine. May I now please welcome Michael Hazeltine. This evening I want to speak about the future of England and in particular the great cities of this country. Much time and political effort is devoted within British politics to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and obviously quite rightly so. These nations within the United Kingdom each have their own distinct identity, their culture and following devolution their own governments. It is inconceivable, in my view, that the settlement made to give these nations their own distinct government whilst sustaining the Union will be radically altered within our lifetime. Of course, Scotland will vote on possible independence in 2014, although I personally fervently hope that they will want to stay with us in the wider endeavour that is the United Kingdom, because I believe that each part of our country contributes substantially to the strength of the whole. But England is really dis- rarely discussed as an entity. The Westminster government passes laws and administers services for the whole of the UK, though these days most of what it does concerns England. Yet it is not an English parliament. Its members are drawn from all parts of the United Kingdom and all MPs can vote on all laws. Whilst I can see there's an argument for reviewing the extent to which Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish MPs vote on purely English legislation, I also wish to see the continuation of a powerful United Kingdom Parliament to deal with defence, foreign affairs, international aid and the redistribution from the richer to the poorer parts of the Kingdom. But my concern for the future of the United Kingdom also points to another issue, that is the need to ensure that England, and in particular places outside the favoured southeast, are given their own opportunities for self-government, autonomy and economic progress. Indeed, I believe that there is an urgent need to rebuild the political class of cities and city regions beyond London and to allow allow all parts of England to compete on a much more equal footing. In recent decades, English politics has become too centralised, leaving many of our major cities without the resources and political powers to provide the leadership necessary to drive economic resurgence. It is for this reason that I was glad to accept David Cameron's invitation to how we might more effectively create wealth across the United Kingdom. It doesn't need me to come here tonight to say that we're experiencing the worst economic crisis of modern times. I believe, and I'm happy as you 
Vice-Chancellor have said, to be supported by the CBI, the TUC, and the Times newspaper uh, in this judgment that Britain needs an industrial strategy. Now, I realise that these words themselves are controversial. Uh, With them comes the baggage of past attempts and of past failures. However, I believe that the Prime Minister's commitment in the Mansion House speech this week to his belief in a modern industrial policy is of a most welcome significance. In order to understand where we are today, we have, I think, briefly to recall the story of England since 1945. At the end of the Second World War, Britain, victorious but impoverished, the Attlee government created the welfare state and also nationalised the commanding heights of the British economy. As a Conservative, I've always believed that it is right to provide people with social care and protection free from the worry of the need to pay for it at the point of use. But I have never subscribed to the need to have a centralised, nationalised government to do it. During the longer period covered by the 20th century, we have seen power over municipal enterprises, first nationalised, then privatised. The electricity, gas and water utilities that were nurtured by the enlightened city councils, and you can't escape the name of Joseph Chamberlain in this context, they're now in the hands of global corporations. I have no problem with this move. Indeed, I think privatised utilities have been able to liberate investment and innovation of a kind that would have been impossible if they had remained in public hands. But inevitably, the local and city government role in provision has gone. Decisions about utilities, investment in, say, Birmingham or Newcastle, are as likely to be made in Paris or Frankfurt as they are in London. Inadvertently, the Attlee government reforms paved the way for a long-term shift of power over public services from local government to the centre. By extending national government control to a range of public services, the stage was set for decades of further shifts of power to London. This is not a party political point. Conservative and Labour governments have both played a role in the further move of political decision-making from our great northern and midland cities to a single dominant southern one. This was not done to aggrandise London or its political class. It was in many ways the accidental or random byproduct of many decisions made about the future of government and public services. As an aside, it is hard not to believe that the end of empire, for example, had something to do with the historic reorientation of the UK Parliament and government, which ceased to play such a dominant role with international concerns and shifted more to domestic ones. No India, no Canada to govern. Our national leaders turned a greater part of their attention to Ipswich and Cumbria. But whatever the reasons, England and, to be frank, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, within their own devolved government systems, has evolved a highly centralised form of government. 
The extent to which this government differs from other comparable economies can best be seen in the OECD statistics about the proportion of overall countrywide tax receipts attributable to local and regional government. In the United States, the percentage taxation controlled by state and local government is equivalent to 9% of GDP, while in Sweden, a country with a radically different setup, it is 16%. Among the big European countries, the percentages are 11% in Germany, 6 in centralised France and 10 in Spain. And what is the equivalent figure for the United Kingdom? I can tell you, it is 1.7%. So this is the total raised by council tax as a share of UK GDP. While I personally applaud the present government's efforts to allow councils in England to retain a proportion of the local business rate, even with this reform, the 1.7% figure will rise to just 3%. Now, I would not propose the immediate transfer of one or more of the exchequer's taxes and revenues to local government. I have used these OECD statistics to make a simple point. By international standards, the UK sees a disproportionate share of the resources paid over by taxpayers concentrated in the hands of London-based ministers and their civil servants. At its simplest, this means that, for example, taxpayers in Greater Manchester or in Leeds City region pay income tax, VAT, excise duties, business taxes and other revenues across to the Chancellor who then divides them up between functional departments who then disperse them back to the very areas from which most of the money came. In an average year, it is likely that the sum total of public spending in many of our city regions is similar to the total paid over in tax in the first place. The effect of this way of doing things is that the allocation of resources to Liverpool, Nottingham, Bristol and other cities becomes the random sum total of ministerial decision-taking within SW1. Local politicians in these and other cities find that they spend far too much time on trains to and from the capital lobbying to get resources from Whitehall. It is central government that determines the various formulae and ad hoc allocations which in turn decides whether or not Newcastle-upon-Tyne can build a new metro line or if Birmingham can rebuild New Street Station. Yet in reality, city and city regional leaders have to argue to get access to the taxes paid by their local residents and businesses. As I say, I'm not arguing for a transfer of more tax-raising powers to cities and other local authorities. I've personally wrestled in government with these issues too often not to be aware of the pitfalls in any alternative policy. It is a subject, certainly, that would merit from detailed and careful analysis, but with no prior commitment as to a particular outcome. What I'm emphasising is how we have turned our major cities and city regions into mendicant authorities dependent on the centre for pretty well all their resources. There have been, I think, two effects, neither of them good. First, it has devalued the importance of the political class within our key cities. Second, 
It allows those cities and city regions to bid for projects and resources without having to think too hard about the direct impact on their local taxpayers. Let me build a little on those points. The problem of devalued local leadership derives from the fact that over the period from 1945, with more and more decisions about domestic policy made at the centre, people have rightly worked out that they need to target their political concern at members of parliament and ministers rather than local councillors. Many MPs are now overburdened with the kind of requests for help that in the past would have been handled by councillors. Parliamentarians have access to Whitehall and are guaranteed to get a reply from the relevant minister about, for example, a family's housing problem. Because all money flows from the centre, the possibility for changing anything is consequently seen to lie there. Moreover, it is true that a city council or regional leadership cannot decide to make a decision, for example, to invest in a new college or a new link road. A ministerial decision and Whitehall approval will be required. It's hardly surprising, therefore, that residents and businesses look over the heads of council leaders to the people who control both resources and powers to undertake those sort of developments in London. The second problem I alluded to was the inevitability that without any perceptible local tax impact, city and local council leaders will inevitably bid to central government for projects and programmes about which they would be more cautious if they had to fund them locally. The costs and consequences of local and regional projects have to be felt locally if rational investments are to be made. So that is another argument for greater local discretion over resource raising. I think it's fair to say that few politicians in any party now fundamentally disagree with this kind of analysis uh, that I've just described. Indeed, Graham Allen's Political and Constitutional Reform Committee has been working to great effect on a new constitutional settlement for local government which would give local councils greater freedom and certainty to direct their own destinies. All party, Labour, Conservative, Lib Dem, politicians sub subscribe to localism. But saying it is not quite the same as doing it or even understanding what needs to be done. Uh, of course, there are clearly barriers to change. I must say something briefly about these before I go on to consider what the current government is doing and what more, I believe, should be done in the future. First and foremost, any politician who works hard over many years to win general elections and then becomes a minister is unlikely to wish immediately to hand over the new power that he's just acquired to other people, particularly other politicians, many of whom might actually be part of a different party to that particular minister. It doesn't make sense. As I said earlier, most parliamentarians believe in greater decentralisation, but once in office, it becomes tempting to use the powers at hand to affect important changes. Another barrier to change is the strength and power of the civil service. 
I happen to believe that Britain has one of the best and most professional civil services in the world. But it will inevitably seek to sustain itself and its authority. Senior officials I have worked with are democratic, decent and non-political. But like any group of professionals, they will inevitably operate in a way that ensures they continue to have the power and influence that they currently enjoy. It's called human nature. Incidentally, delivering devolution to Scotland and Wales was relatively simple because their bureaucracy was already separated within Whitehall. No civil servant had their job or authority challenged by shifting power from London to Edinburgh and Cardiff. Most of them were already there. However, any radical shift of power from London to the cities, city regions and local government more generally, would inevitably lead to a small cadre of civil servants. A third barrier to reform is the perception that central government is somehow superior to local government. Ministers and civil servants see themselves as being the sort of top of the tree, with superior knowledge and, frankly, a higher level of skills. I sadly can only point to the endless stream of National Audit Office reports about waste in Whitehall departments to suggest that those who operate at the centre of government are just as capable of error and frailty as anyone else. I remember very clearly, as Secretary of State for Defence, the challenge of achieving cost efficiency and competitiveness out of the procurement processes of that department. Now, I would be the first to concede that local government has had its bad patches. I was Secretary of State for the Environment in the early 1980s when the loony left took control of a number of our cities. Incidentally, they took control of a number of our universities, but I won't bring that up here. (laughs) (laughs) So, at that time, I had to fight to ensure that local taxpayers, residents and businesses were protected. But things have moved on a long way since then. I have worked with the politicians and other local leaders in Liverpool for much of the past 30 years. And I can assure you that the Labour city leaderships of the kind found in Merseyside today are no longer prone to the kind of extremism of the past. Like Conservatives in local government, they want improved skills, more jobs, more prosperous industries, a better place in the sun for their communities. So those are some of the barriers to decentralisation. And, of course, I believe that they can be overcome. The coalition self-evidently believes that. It has taken a number of steps that will, in my view, over time, begin the process of shifting power away from the centre and towards localities. Indeed, it is beginning to happen. In particular, I wish to see cities and city regions as the engines of local autonomy and economic growth. So, let me indicate some of the policies that the government is already pursuing along such an agenda. Next April, the government will allow councils in England to retain a proportion of their business rates. Under the complex local government finance arrangements we have in this country, and believe me, I was responsible for them, they certainly are complex, councils cannot retain a single penny of any non-domestic rate that they attract to their area. It all goes straight back to the Treasury. Under Eric Pickle's new arrangements, 
local authorities will be able to keep 50% of any growth in their business rate base. Now, I believe, as the government does, that this will incentivize councils to give planning permissions more speedily and to work even more actively to attract new businesses and therefore new rate revenue to their areas. For the newly resurgent authorities, such as Manchester, Leeds, Bristol and the post-Olympic Newham, there are real opportunities now to go for bigger and higher density developments that will produce a significant new local yield. The more they develop, the more they will keep. The incentives provided by local business rates retention are a good first step to allowing councils to benefit from going for growth. As the economy picks up, many of our cities will be able to follow those I've named here. Liverpool, where I recently co-chaired an inquiry with Sir Terry Leahy of uh, Tesco's into the city's economic prospects, is well-placed to pursue projects such as the Peel Development Proposals for a massive expansion and improvement of the city's riverside. Liverpool has one of the most beautiful and architecturally exciting waterfronts in any city in the world, in my view, on a par with Shanghai and New York. And it will be significantly assisted in its long-term efforts by being able to retain part of the business rate growth that will come from the development of its waterfront. But one should ask the question, why should Nottingham or Sheffield or Birmingham be any different? These cities, too, have ambitious plans for the future, and they should be encouraged by the reform of business rates. If I can make a party political point here, I would add that a Conservative-led government is introducing a reform that will, albeit, marginally increase local authorities' fiscal autonomy. Labour-controlled cities will, in many cases, be the beneficiaries, even though the previous government never attempted such a reform. But this reality underlines the present government's commitment to change in my report, I describe a number of the government's pro-growth initiatives, and I could tell you a little of them. In parallel with the reform of business rates, the, government, the current government has introduced the new homes bonus. This works much like rates reform. It works to incentivise councils to allow development. Under the previous arrangements, local authorities, which gave planning permission for new homes, saw any new council tax thus generated being removed literally on a pound-for-pound pound basis as equalisation grants took their toll. Now, for each new home that comes onto the council tax valuation list, the council is given a grant equivalent to the new tax generated <coughs> as a consequence. There is a bonus for social and affordable housing, and this reform will continue in the longer term providing an ongoing incentive to construct more housing while providing councils with the resources that can be reinvested in local facilities. The community infrastructure levy will fulfil a similar function. Councils can now set a fixed tariff in relation to new developments so as to generate the funding necessary for new infrastructure and other local facilities. This will give predictability to developers and create a positive feedback between new development and improved local services. Thirty years ago, when I was Secretary of State for the Environment in Mrs. Thatcher's government, we introduced two development corporations, one in Docklands and the other on Merseyside, and a number of enterprise zones. 
I'm happy to say that these initiatives have been used by successive governments in various forms ever since. The current government has announced 10 enterprise zones within England, in most of the core cities. Within these areas, the locality will be able to keep any new business rates generated for up to 25 years, I believe. Local enterprise partners, about which I will say more in a moment, will benefit from the resources generated in this way. A mayoral development corporation model is being used here in London to secure the longer-term regeneration of the Olympic Park. Another spin-off from the reform of non-domestic rates is the possibility of using tax increment financing, it's called TIF, to secure new investment in sections of our cities. And it operates by allowing a local authority to promote the construction of new infrastructure, which will, once available, allow development to take place. The local taxes paid by such a development can then be used to service and repay the original debt that was incurred to create the infrastructure in the first place. If the Battersea Power Station site is now finally to be regenerated, it will require the construction of a link to the underground, and the TIF concept offers a plausible way of at least part funding the tube extension. Other cities have their own proposals for using this novel in concept, and I'm glad to see that the city deals which Greg Clark has announced propose such arrangements in Newcastle, Sheffield and Nottingham. A few moments ago I mentioned the local enterprise partnerships. These are relatively new institutions and they are the coalition's attempt to create plausible, locally focused bodies which will foster and encourage enterprise. They are in effect partnerships between the local authority and the business community. They are not a replacement for the regional development agencies, although I note in passing that there's very little opposition politician today seriously suggesting we should recreate the RDAs. They had become large and unwieldy bureaucracies. They may have done some fine work, but it's simple fact that the GVA per head of most regions outside the greater southeast failed to meet the target that was set to attract convergence between London and the southeast and the east itself. Despite 13 years of economic growth up to 2008, the northern and midland regions actually grew less quickly than the capital's super region. There were 39 of these existing LEPs, and they, as I say, can bring together business and local government partners to apply for resources for the fund of which I was the chairman of the advisory board, the Regional Growth Fund. In responding to the proposals, we've been mindful of the need to create sustainable new jobs, particularly in those areas most affected by the shrinkage in public sector employment. In my recent report, I proposed that the local enterprise partnerships be strengthened with a new enhanced role and up to a quarter of a million pounds for each of the next two years to, to devise their own local economic strategies and to create the foundations to implement them. In my view, that the LEPs should lead a long-term strategic business plan for their area, which would be the basis of bids to central government for the resources needed for local investment. At the same time, I also propose giving Chambers of Commerce 
an established legal status to enhance their role as coordinating hubs for the private sector. They would then be able to work more effectively with the local enterprise partnerships to support business development. Uh, I certainly don't believe that one should for one minute underestimate the challenge in all this. The British economy has been tilting away from the Midlands and the North for generations and we cannot change such a reality. Nevertheless, I believe that policies followed since the 1980s have created a resurgence in Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle, Sheffield, uh, not always perhaps in some of the outlying areas. But there is one reality, I think, that we have to observe when we talk about the North-South divide. I think we need to rethink the language to reflect London's unique position in the global economy. It is arguable, and I do believe it, that London has a greater breadth of excellence than any other city in the world. There may be richer cities, there may be more powerful cities, there may be more beautiful cities, but there is no city that encompasses such a complexity of excellence in politics, economics, the arts, academia, and many other fields of human challenge and endeavour within the history of our time. We should be proud of this and build on it. Our provinces will benefit from it. What we should not do is to undermine it with redistribution policies that hold it back in the belief that this will accelerate performance elsewhere. We should face the fact that growth in the London superstate may continue to exceed the rest of the United Kingdom. The real challenge is to enhance the opportunities outside London so that the widening of the gap is contained within politically acceptable limits. And that means unleashing the latent energy and releasing the underlying strengths everywhere to be found in Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and Provincial England. Another element in the government's policy is its reform of the planning system. All recent governments have recognised that England's town and country planning system has achieved both good and bad results. On the good side, it has, in large measure, preserved England's green and pleasant land from sprawl and degradation. Few attributes of England more obviously express Englishness than its beautiful countryside. And I, in my report, stress my support for the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act and its role in protecting that beauty from sprawl and unnecessary development. However, on the bad side, there is evidence, some of it provided by researchers here at the London School of Economics, that our slow and restrictive planning system can inhibit economic growth. We probably need to shift the balance, at least in areas that are not of outstanding natural beauty, towards more development. I hope that by pushing decision-making about planning downwards and in parallel removing red tape and providing the incentives I've already described, we can see faster and more pro-growth development. I turn now to a subject at the heart of my political philosophy, the introduction of directly elected executive mayors. I believe that one of the keys to unlocking a shift of power to cities and city regions is the establishment of such office holders in local government. I'm pleased that Liverpool, Leicester, Salford and, of course, London now have directly elected mayors. Bristol will tomorrow elect a mayor for the first time. I believe this will be good for the city, whichever of the candidates wins. Uh, 
And I defy anyone here today to argue that London has not benefited by the efforts of its successive mayors, Ken Livingstone and Boris Johnson. They have introduced policies that no central government could ever have pushed through. The Trafalgar Square improvements, congestion charging, massive and continuing tube investments, crossrail, the London Overground, Boris Bikes and of course the 2012 Olympics would almost certainly not have happened, certainly not as successfully, without a powerful mayor pushing them through. Among our biggest cities, Liverpool and Bristol now have an opportunity to deliver better and more effective government by the application of mayoral power. I took part in the campaign with the uh, shadow spokesman for the Labour Party, Andrew Adonis, to promote mayors across England. And I have to admit to sadness that more cities did not vote yes. There is no doubt in my mind that by holding the mayoral referenda on the same day as this year's local elections, the government's mid-term unpopularity, classic in every government, undermined support for the executive mayor's proposal. The most depressing analysis pointed to the total indifference of the local electorate. Couple that with the self-seeking agenda of local politicians and the rest is history. But my view is that the case must not be allowed to rest there. Looking ahead, I hope that the experience in Liverpool, Bristol, Salford, Leicester and London will encourage other cities to revisit the issue in the near future. In particular, I would like to see a rather different proposition also considered. There is a powerful case for a city-region mayor, for example, Greater Manchester, Greater Liverpool, Greater Leeds, Greater Birmingham, and so on. These city-regional areas already have local enterprise partnerships. Manchester, in addition, has led the way in creating a combined authority which has proved resilient and effective in allowing 10 metro districts to work amicably and productively together. I believe that if these city regions could agree to elect mayors, they would benefit from greater coherence, far greater international visibility, and much enhanced local interest and accountability. During the last summer, Greg Clark announced city deals for eight of our major cities, giving them greater financial discretion, and in the case of Greater Manchester, an opportunity to retain a proportion of the national tax take associated with future economic growth. A further 20 cities have recently been shortlisted for a second round of such deals. Given the obduracy of many Whitehall departments when it comes to ceding power, I would like to pay tribute to Greg and his colleagues for their success in negotiating some decentralisation of power. City deals are another building block in the strengthening of city and city regional power. I think we should also pay tribute to the cities unit within the Cabinet Office under Nick Clegg's overall watch, which has provided support for these reforms. Community budgets are another good idea promoted by DCLG. At their simplest, community budgets would allow the pooling of resources and or powers by councils and other local providers generally those which answer to central government, so as to achieve greater coordination and efficiency for service users. The previous government attempted something similar with its Total Place initiative. But I believe the central government should go much further than it has in encouraging central governments to allow local pooling and joint operation of services. Our major cities offer great opportunities for consistent and efficient joint provision Linking local government, education, health, 
social security and transport spending. We need to see that silos are we will keep the grain, not for public expenditure. As far as business support is concerned, I state categorically in my report that central government should identify the budgets administered by different departments which support growth and then pool them in a single pot where those budgets relate to local authority areas. And there should be a competitive bidding process from the local partnerships for five-year grants from this single pot that would support investments and initiatives that the local enterprise partnerships believe will enhance growth opportunities. And in making their bid, they would have to say that if we get X pounds of public money, we will organise additional money from the private sector or the third sector, whatever it may be, in order to enhance the scale of resource deployed in our area. Taken together, the government's policies, as outlined here, offer a major opportunity for England cities. There can be a rather greater local discretion to promote and foster economic growth and to deliver locally sensitive services. There can be more powerful local leadership, which, by example, will encourage greater and further decentralisation of power. Of course, I have spoken, as I said at the beginning, mostly about cities and city regions, and I realise that counties and districts in more rural areas are also very important, and I do not wish to understate that importance. But it is our cities that will continue to command our greatest attention. I say this for three reasons. First, because the cities are the engines of regional and national economies. Second, because there is a much underused and derelict scale of land within them. And third, because many of the poorest and most deprived people live in the major cities. I believe it would be appropriate to concentrate on decentralisation to English cities for another reason. This could be England's devolution. Let's be honest. We're never going to see regional government in England. John Prescott tried it and it did not succeed. But we can see a major shift of power from London to all our major cities which would lead to a re-establishment of powerful political leadership in those places. Incidentally, I believe such a re-establishment of power in our biggest cities would make it far easier to envisage the development of regional banks, financial and health services, and much else organised on a local basis. It works in America, it works in Germany, why shouldn't it work here? There are two further issues I must cover before briefly looking forward. The first is that by arguing for more power in England's major cities, I am clearly making the case for a move of power away from London. This is not anti-London. Indeed, I would also wish to see London itself benefit from further devolution of power from Whitehall's departments to the mayoral and borough model. Our current level of centralisation would be a, prob a problem wherever the UK capital was located. Moreover, there will always be a role for a smaller and more adaptable Whitehall. The other point to make here is that it would be possible to decentralise while sustaining inter-area equalisation. I'm not arguing for an end of transfers of resources from the richer to the poorer parts of the country. That's not going to happen and it shouldn't happen. 
And indeed, wherever you look overseas, the same process, whether it's in federal Germany or Australia, is part of the political backdrop. And England uh, and the United Kingdom as a whole must continue to operate as a single unitary country, albeit one, in my view, with much more federal tendencies. But we must not use the need for equalizing transfers and thus sustaining a broad level of national provision as an excuse for the intervention of Whitehall across the board and in every detail. Finally, I want to turn to the longer term and to a number of the 89 recommendations in my report that I have not already considered. I believe that ministers and civil servants should be organized to reflect the existence of LEPs. Local authorities will need to work together in functional economic areas, and in the longer term, I suggest that all two-tier areas outside London should move to a single level of local government. Formal collaboration should be rewarded by success in the allocation of the challenge funding to which I referred earlier. Local government and the local enterprise partnerships need to work within an understood national strategy for economic success. You cannot get away from the fact that governments have policies, responsibilities, and they must set them out clearly. And I think that that needs the creation of a national growth council chaired by the Prime Minister to generate a cross-governmental approach to growth in the economy. Every government department then needs to play its part and I think that the new private sector non-executive directors who have been appointed to each government department should find their role enhanced and given a greater opportunity to report to the centre. Relationships between departments and business need to be radically strengthened. There has already been welcome developments in, for example, the Automobile Council and the Aerospace Council created within the Department for Business, but there is plenty of opportunity to extend this process further. I also believe that beyond the actual working Whitehall departments themselves, we need to look at each quango and non-departmental body to be sure that they understand the role that they can play in sharpening up their acts a very obvious example is the procurement and the opening up of procurement to a wider number of companies, particularly smaller companies, and in the general promotion of Britain overseas. Government departments and regulators must also look to see whether their policies are sensible or unnecessarily fussy and therefore impeding to the growth agenda. Planning, particularly strategic infrastructure, is too slow. Too often, governments avoid making big decisions for political reasons, and I've been as guilty of that as anyone. I know all the arguments that government ministers have to avoid taking controversial decisions. But the fact is that decisions over airport capacity, energy supply, and railways are central to a growth strategy. In parallel, we need mechanisms to encourage private capital to find a way into the financing of major infrastructure investments. There is untold billions of money sitting in the pension funds looking for investment opportunities. But today, at present, every major project is a one-off requiring funders to fight for the right to be part of it, often with government itself providing the delaying factor. So we need good decision-making, rapidly implemented, 
and much easier ways for the investors to find safe homes for their long-term investment on behalf of their pensioners. Finally, we need to improve our skills. As competition intensifies from all over the world, India, Latin America, Korea, Germany, and now China, we cannot accept the fact that some schools and colleges leave young people ill-prepared to compete. Uh, I know full well someone who years and years ago set up my own small business, the need to encourage and assist with entrepreneurship, schools and FE colleges, and of course universities. They have a vital role to play in ensuring that LEPs and other growth agencies can influence the type and quality of skills made available by the education system. It is a chilling fact, published by the government, that there are 591 schools that are failing to deliver the basic outputs that an advanced economy needs today. Dealing with that in itself would be a major contributor, not just to the wealth and growth of our economy, but it would avoid the fact that we are literally producing every year a significant number of young people who will never find effective work in today's sophisticated economy. Even looking after elderly people, the growth market, a very important market, if you can't understand the description of the pill on the package, you can't be trusted with that caring thought. You can't work in a garden unless you can read the danger on the fertiliser packet that you are using. It's simple as that. Our immigration system, very controversial, but it must not be an accidental barrier to the country acquiring the skills it needs. We probably need 30,000 engineers in this country today to fill the vacancies that exist there is no way we can produce those engineers from Britain's academic background in the timescale that is relevant. There is only one way to attract them, and that is to find them overseas. And this is highly controversial because of the widespread concern about those who have managed to find their way around the immigration rules and have no legal right to be here. So tackling both of those issues at the same time is an urgent part of the growth agenda. At the start of this speech, I referred to the need for England to have its own response to the changes that have occurred and are still taking place in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. I believe that the proposals in my recent report would, if implemented, provide strengthened urban economies in the North East and North West, Midlands and the West Country. These assertive city regions would represent an organically developed opportunity to strengthen the political and business class beyond London SW1. It cannot be right that England is so centrally government. There is no economy like us in the world that has this monopolistic functional process. The more we're able to shift decision-making closer to the places where people live and work the better our decisions will reflect the strengths and opportunities of the local economies and therefore the national economy. Of course, there will still be need 
for national planning and national investment. It's, this is a small and densely populated place. But I have no doubt at all that within the gift of government now, there is an opportunity to change the pace at which we use our resources and the consequences that flow from it. The Industrial Revolution started in the North and the Midlands. It did not start in London. But we have the advantage now of a stable government, a much-admired legal system, and some of the most created people in the world. There is no reason why we cannot have a second post-industrial revolution. My report will, I hope, play some small modest part in encouraging the government and localities to grasp the opportunity. Thank you very much. As we open the floor to questions, let me thank Lord Heseltine for his speech as well as for the report, which should be read widely. We've heard several topics about which you may have questions, the centrality of cities, the importance of decentralization, but still with a government strategy, emphasizing growth, being willing to tackle tough and controversial issues, and revitalizing the political leadership as well as the economies of diverse cities and city regions, and indeed building public-private cooperation for the future of England. So I think there's much on the table. Let me invite speakers, remind you, we have one, two in the future, up there, three and four. Okay. So um, please go ahead to the first uh, Lord, Lord Hesitine, Keith Raffin, um, two brief points. Even accepting that the RDAs are too large and unwieldy, how do you respond to the criticism of the LAPs as being very variable in quality? And the second point, which you haven't touched on, is the problem in local government of one-party states. Isn't it time that England followed Scotland and had PR in local government? Well... You're not going to get PR in local government, so uh, I, could I could recommend it if I was inclined to, but I'm not. But they're not going to do it anyway, so let's not get bogged down in that sort of argument. You've already seen an attempt to change the electoral system, uh, and a lot of time and effort was made, and it didn't get anywhere. Uh, same thing about the House of Lords. We're not going to do it. So I did spend quite a lot of time thinking in my report about the art of the possible. And uh, everything I propose is consistent with government policy. It is all about saying that's what they're doing. It could go further and faster. Uh, quite a deliberate decision on my part. Um, on the first point, I've forgotten what it was. It was the RDAs. The quality of the LEPs. Yes, that is the classic argument. I've listened to it for 40 years. It is the argument that says local government is no good and therefore what we will do is create a quango. And that's what they've done. Uh, and now, when we are looking at the devolution process, there's an argument going on in Whitehall as a consequence of my report which says we can't give it back to the LEPs because they're not good enough. We can't give it to the Chambers of Commerce to play a bigger role because they're not good enough. Whoopee, we can go on as before. That is precisely the wrong analysis. If they're not good enough, you should make them better. And that's what Britain has not succeeded in doing. 
it has simply taken more and more and more power on the happy assumption that the people who then exercise it are better, more able, wiser, cleverer, can get it right. There's not a shred of evidence to support that assumption. And I had a very interesting example, which I, I wish I could share with, with the whole world yesterday. I sat in Liverpool, and uh, I was, the, the local mayor was there, the vice-chancellor was there, the, uh, the lady who runs the academy was there, there were people, there were people from the private sector, uh, and, and there were probably 40 people arguing for a particular locally-based plan which involved the, true, the School of Tropical Medicine, the new hospital, the academy, a UTC they wanted to create, and the private sector spin-offs that would follow. And it was visionary. It was exciting, dynamic. And as I listened to it, I thought, I just wonder what would be happening in Whitehall. Now, there was a listed building involved. So somebody would be saying, well, well now we've got to look at that. Uh, they've just called in the proposal to look at the historic docks in Liverpool. So that, that's the first thing. The, um, the Department of Health would say, oh, School of Tropical Medicine, well, we must have a look at that. That's a very interesting development. The uh, Department of Education would say, oh, yes, well, they're talking about uh, education. We'd better have a look at that. The Department of Industry would say, well, the skills agenda is ours, so we, we can't let that out of our control. And by the time I'd listened to this visionary, exciting, dynamic, locally-based opportunity, I had got in my mind a whole range of officials and their ministers all taking the proposal apart to dissect an individual part of it. It's in a rather dramatic way of putting it. It's like looking at an athlete by taking his feet and having them under a microscope. It's the athletic body that matters. And that's what London can't grip. Thank you. George Jones, Emeritus Professor, Government Department, LSE. While I'm very happy with your praise for local government and its leadership, how is that consistent with your advocacy of these LEPs, Local Enterprise Partnerships, when they are business-led when we don't find the mayors or city leaders chairing these bodies. In fact, businessmen are they not the chairs of these bodies. They're business-dominated, which means they are non-accountable quangos that Mr. Maud is trying to abolish as much as he can. So how do you make consistent your advocacy of democratic local government leadership with your advocacy of unaccountable quangos? Well, I don't accept the unaccountability. No LEP can put forward a proposal unless its local authority members agree it. Uh, they are partnerships. They're partnerships between the local authority and the local wealth creators. And the the reason uh, so there's local accountability from the local authority there's national accountability from the elected government who have to accept the proposals but I, I'd like to share the history with you if you think about what made our great enterprise cities they were a pretty rough lot of people 
but they did a fantastic job in the context of the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, they were buccaneers, they were entrepreneurs, they, they were wealth creators, and they were driven by it. Uh, slowly and understandably and rightly, in my view, the appalling social conditions um, meant a new sort of person became the dynamic of the local area, and they were called councillors. And because of the enormous redistribution of money, the councillors were broadly focused on the distribution of the social provision, housing, education, whatever it may be. And so the dynamic that made them was replaced by a group of well-intentioned men and women whose principal preoccupation was providing the social infrastructure. So the balance had completely switched. No one really thought about it. No one really intended it, but it happened. And it not only happened to the councillor as opposed to the entrepreneur, but it happened because in the redistribution process, central government got more and more control because the money was being recycled, as I defined. And what did central government do? It divided itself up into functions. So I described to you very vividly about my experience in Liverpool yesterday. There was the local team, the local wealth creators, public and private sector, university, local government, uh, entrepreneurs. They got it all sorted. Up here, we would dissect it back into its functional processes. Now, that is the analysis underlying my report. And I think that the LEPs are an attempt to put the balance slightly differently. But the local authorities are a crucial part of this. They have all the money, let's be frank. They have all the planning powers. They have the housing powers. They have many of the social security powers. And, um, and they have the influence. You know, if you go and see, as I know them very well, I'm sure many of you do, you, you work with these local leaders and the chief executives in the good <coughs> municipalities. They're very outstanding people. Okay, good. Lady on the aisle here. First of all, thank you very much for your comments. Um, given your comments about London and the importance of maintaining London as a, a global center for so many uh, skills, do you think it's possible for the city to retain its leadership role given the changes in the regulatory financial landscape over the next five to seven years? Uh, well, I think that uh, it is possible, but one will have to fight for it because I haven't the slightest doubt that, first of all, there's a massive shift of wealth from west to east. There will be an emergence of huge uh, financial centres in, in the Far East um, and, and maybe elsewhere. And uh, so that in itself will, will be a challenge. There is then the whole issue of the European development and whether the Eurozone consolidates itself and, ceases and, and seeks to um, divert financial services away from the city to, to Frankfurt and Paris. Uh, so they're all big, they're battles to fight, but I think the government is aware of them. Certainly anyone I know in the city of London is aware of them. So life is, 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 is nasty, short and brutish. You've got to be out there fighting for yourself. I, that glass, well, it isn't, it isn't but I, <laughs> that glass is going to be half full. <laughs> okay, so very good. Half full. The man, the blue shirt in the center. Hi, uh, I'm Hussein Arslan. I'm studying at LSE Human Rights. I'm studying at LSE. 
Um, you, your report suggests that um, the local authorities should be given more power in terms of democracy. Um, I'm just wondering whether you would suggest <coughs> the UK um, territories such as Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland should be given more power to make their own decisions without Westminster Parliament's permission. And also I'm just wondering whether you would suggest England to have its own parliament. I didn't understand that. I wonder if you would suggest for England to have its own parliament, oh, yes. there's yeah. more autonomy yeah. in the other regions. <laughs> I, I don't think this issue is going to go away. I mean, I haven't personally addressed it, but it is the obvious question that if you have devolution to the three outside areas, uh, they are taking decisions, and it's a political fact of life, they're taking political decisions which would not be taken if there was to be a more English representative group. Um, and so that issue is not going to get away. But whether you could ever get the reform through the House of Commons is another matter. Okay. Um, if you want a man in a yellow sweater here on the... Yeah. Thank you. Um, Lord Helstein, uh, tomorrow there are elections for police commissioners. And unless I am mistaken, unfortunately, the turnout is likely to be extremely low. Now, I very much hope I'm wrong. But my fundamental question is this. Is not the problem the lack of interest compared, say, for example, with the debate in Scotland? Well, you're not wrong. There is going to be a very low turnout. And that itself is a problem. And the reason I think I, uh, we had exactly the same problem with the mayoral elections, uh, low turnout, and uh, therefore the local interests of the councillors protecting their own particular position meant that in most cases the referendum were lost. I was personally against a referendum in the first place. I am against referendum, but uh, um, I think governments are elected to govern, and that's what they're for. Um, but uh, I think there's a very serious point that lies behind what you're saying. There is complete disenchantment in, with local democracy. People don't actually believe in it. They, they, it, it, only, it reflects, whenever it is exercised, a disenchantment with the national government. If you've got a popular government, you win seats. If you've got an unpopular government, you lose seats. Uh, nobody thinks it matters what the local authority is doing. And if you follow the logic of what I'm saying, it doesn't matter that much because the central government makes all the decisions. Now, that I find unhealthy. And so uh, that makes me keen on trying to find ways of, of, um, of devolving power. Okay. Thank you. The second row here. Uh, Jack Tindell, I'm a former student at the LSE. Um, you raised the point, and I think quite well, about your support of elected mayors. I, I agree with you on that. I, I would wonder, though, do you think there was a case for their powers to be increased to a more American model? Because fundamentally, the mayor of London still exists as little more than a glorified transport commissioner. I think, is there a role for giving them more authority over education, transport, health, and policing? Well, I, I think... I agree with the, what, the trust of what you're saying. Um, I think there are opportunities to devolve more power to the Mayor of London. Uh, I think if we had mayors in the conurbations, it would be the same argument. 
I did mention uh, the sort of things that might develop, like local regional banks and issues of this sort. You could see the health service much more devolved. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm very keen on devolution is um, because it produces competition. Uh, if, if you take the idea of my single pot, and I, I don't think I mentioned the figure, but I will tell you what it is in my report. The, the figure is about 60, mil, 60 billion pounds would be the size of the pot over five years. Now, that is the figure that is included in the public expenditure profile for the next four and five years after the cuts. So that is the amount of money that central government will spend through local government over that period of time, £60 billion. Pounds. It's £49 billion of central government money and £11 billion of European money. Uh, so it's, it's big money. Um, but if you, if you simply allocate it to the local LEPs or to the local authorities, they say, thank you very much, you haven't given us enough, and uh, the debate goes on. If you say to them, look, 60 billion, you tell us what you would do, they immediately start looking at the sort of imaginative schemes I was describing, in, they're all over the place. They immediately come together as a community to see how they can interrelate they look to see what the real priorities locally are as opposed to what they think they can get from central government. And you get best ones and worst ones, and you get comparisons. And I find that competitive situation extremely exciting. And it has two consequences if you have the courage to see it through. The first consequence is you have losers. Now, this is not absolute losers. I mean, you don't get a situation where Manchester gets a lot and Liverpool gets nothing. Of course, it doesn't happen like that. But there will be relative winners and relative losers, and it'll be quite apparent which they are. That's the first year. The consequence of that is that the relative losers get very indignant. The first thing they do is to say we was robbed and it's unfair and it's this, that and the other. But actually, when they calm down, it doesn't take long, they suddenly say, well, we've got to go and find out why so-and-so won. And they start jacking up their standards. And I saw all this with City Challenge. Electric effect it had uh, on the losers. But there is another, and um, you can argue it both ways, but I will, I will explain to you why I believe in it. Suppose, under the present regimes, by and large, everybody gets something. And, and doesn't make a great deal of difference what, what's happening on the ground. You will get your housing, you will get your roads, you will get your schools, you will get this, that, and the other, and it will come like the Christmas cards. I've dealt with those who do well and those who don't do so well. But what happens to the community which is impoverished? And I'm not talking about full of poor people, I'm talking that really has got no natural, easy, winning assets. It hasn't got any leading technology, it hasn't got a leading university, it hasn't got um, whatever it takes. Well, my system shows that up starkly because its bid won't be very good. How can it be? Because it, it hasn't got the strengths upon which to build. So when you look at the 39 bids, we'll say that 36 of them are in the first two categories. And then you are starkly faced with three. And 
so the question is, well, do we just give them a bit more housing money, a bit more transport money, or do we face up to the fact that there's something structurally inadequate about this particular area? And what do we do about that? And I would rather politicians were forced to face that issue because I can think of lots of things you can do if you come to terms with the fact you've got a problem of that sort. I'll give you examples. You could go and find some overseas company that is footloose and is looking for somewhere to invest, and you can make it worth their while. Yes, you can call it a bribe. You can, what's, what's regional aid all about, which everybody spends money on, to come and invest, like we did with Nissan and Toyota and Jaguar and all these other places, you could really make it worth their while to come to such a deprived area. You could say, well, look, we need a new university, and we're going to have a new university for life sciences, whatever it was you wanted, and we're going to put a lot of public money into creating in that area the leading edge we can, and we're going to pay leading people to go and work there, you see, you could move a government department, which is we've, we've done. You could move a military training establishment. But my solution will force you to face the issue. And I think that's a much better, more constructive way than simply saying, well, give them a bit more housing, give them a bit more roads. Because all you're doing is compounding the problem. Okay. Over here on the right, the gentleman, the support code, if you still have a question. Yes. Wait, wait, wait for him, yeah. Thank you very much. And I'm in Oakley, currently doing A-levels at the moment. And I would like to ask, uh, by the elections of the Scottish independence problem coming in 2014, will that be, um, create uh, more awareness of different parts of the United Kingdom to increase their autonomy and also different parts of the cities across the country to um, increase, want to increase more about uh, autonomy in their local area uh, or be able to make decisions by themselves instead of in, in Whitehall. Thank you. I was wondering if the 2014 election probability is going to increase demands for autonomy. Oh, you mean the referendum in, in Scotland? Yeah, yeah the Scottish referendum. Uh, well, I think they'll lose it. I think that the Scots will vote for remaining in the United Kingdom. I hope they do. I think they will. I think the arguments for breaking up the United Kingdom are just... I, mean, I have to be polite about people, but it's quite difficult to think of a polite way of describing um, the idea that, that you're going to tell the Scottish people to vote for independence without knowing if they can join Europe or not, without any idea of how much money they're going to get from the UK to sustain living standards which are totally dependent upon the British English taxpayer. Uh, and I think when these issues are confronted in Scotland, they will, as very wise Scots, um, they will work it out for themselves. So I don't believe that, the, uh, that they're going to win the, the, the referendum. But it, it, and you know the very interesting thing about Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, who've got devolution in quotes, I've been there, and they've simply replicated the Whitehall model in Edinburgh, and in uh, Cardiff and in Belfast. They haven't devolved to their local communities. So it was all about the power for the political machine in, in the capital cities, which is exactly the opposite of what I'd have thought devolvement was all about. Um, 
But it, it will, the, the, this whole issue, about your, the point about your question, is, is the, the 2014 referendum going to uh, uh, raise the issue? The issue is already out there. Uh, I mean, the response to my report, although I say it myself, has been extremely encouraging. There's a great appetite for what I'm recommending. And in fairness to the government, they know this. Okay, the man in black in the fourth row there. Good evening, Mr. Heseltine. My name's Norman Lewin. I'm uh, Norman Lewin. Uh, the question that I'd like to ask you, um, first of all, I'd like to make, make a couple, few uh, comments first. Uh, your faith in local government is quite shocking for me, for me because uh, if you read uh, uh, Private Eye, practically every fortnight, it's full of rotten boroughs. Councillors, mayors, chief executives, either doing some crazy idea or dipping their hand in the till. So I'm quite shocked that you've got a great faith in, in our local authorities. Can, can, I, can I just uh, make, can I make a, I don't know what newspapers you read, I, I just have a whisper of a thought that they're the odd national politicians featuring in the... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, that's... <laughs> well, we're talking about localism at the moment. We can talk about lots of other things, but what politicians do as well. Uh, the BBC are running currently a documentary series about Stoke City Council and about the cuts that they have to make. And it's been quite shocking that the mayor, or I think he's the chief executive, I think, is totally inept in skills and doesn't really understand the problems about cutting and what he has to cut and the people who are voicing their opinion against these cuts. It looks like he hasn't got any business skills or management skills, yet he is the leader of the council. Uh, I think your colleague Bernard Jenkins, and this is the question I'm going to ask you, is, is, has hit on something quite extraordinary, which I think I agree with, is that he's looking into the fact that a lot of, of uh, public servants in Whitehall don't have the necessary skills about the subject they're dealing with. Look at the quang, uh, what the debacle that's happened just recently with the trains, with the Virgin train debacle, where it's, it's been quickly identified that the uh, civil servants didn't have the skills to be able to operate a, 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 a situation like that. And my worry is if the Whitehall haven't got the skills, certainly the councils don't have. And that's the question I'm asking you. You have a lot of faith in localism, but I don't think the skills and the business management skills because it's quite surprising that they're dealing with huge amounts of money in terms of our own taxes and what the government gives. And, and it's shocking that these people don't have the acumen to be able to, de to develop it and to do it properly. We only just have to look at our urban cities, which is full of strange anomalies in terms of planning, strange buildings that are quite shockingly ugly. Okay. And, uh, and it goes from there. My, well, your yeah. faith in localism is, is extraordinary. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think you helpfully answered your own question because <laughs> ha having told me about the incompetence of local government, you then moved on to explain about the incompetence of national government. And actually, I rather share your view about both. But the, and, and my report is quite clear that we, we have got to have much more expertise in central government. Um, because officials are not skilled in, 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 in technical matters. They rely on advice from um, other people. Um, and I think you've got to have a much higher degree of interchange between the public and private sectors. Um, but I, I see nothing that says that central government is more skilled than the local people. And, um, well, I gave you my, you know, my meeting yesterday, which is seared on my consciousness, 
there was the, the mayor, the local, the vice chancellor, the very successful industrialist, a very impressive head of an academy. And if you were discussing those issues in Whitehall, man for man, woman for woman, the talent would not be there, and the expertise would not be there. So if you've got a problem, and you, I, I'm acknowledging to you that there is one about lack of skills, whether it's centrally or locally, don't give up, sort it. But whatever, I beg of you, don't believe you should centralize it. Okay, I, I must say your enthusiasm for asking questions is growing as the time runs out. <laughs> the man in the blue shirt with glasses uh, just in the center there. Hold your hand up so we can see you with the microphone, if you still want to ask a question. Clive Emery, could I ask, there seems to me a, a view that the, sort of the success of the mayoral in London should be copied, but do you think it's due to the size and the scale of the London economy, and do you believe that there is a sort of scale of individuals, 8 to 10 million, which becomes relevant for public accountability, for public press, that isn't necessarily copied in a Wolverhampton or a Bristol? Do you think it should be more regional, and do you think that could be a way of moving from regional government to having regional mayors who have, would have a clout over a similar population size and therefore have a similar clout, um, public opinion, etc. No, I don't believe it's a factor of, of, uh, um, um, of size. I mean, if you go to France, any village has got a mayor. Everyone knows who it is. Anything goes wrong, he or she is held responsible. And if, if you look at... There is no advanced economy which hasn't got this directly elected accountability at a local level. I mean, it is, um, and, and in many ways, it's not even advanced, well, capitalist economies. The, the president of China, there's a sporting chance, it's the ex-mayor of Shanghai. Uh, if you look at the, what's happened just in America, the two battling it out to be president were ex-governors of states in America. Um, and it, it, so... Every economy of which I have any knowledge has got a locally identified and elected person in charge. Whereas what we do is we elect party councillors who then sit down and choose one of them to be the leader. And it doesn't resonate. It, they're not known. The parties are now, to be, let's be frank about it, you may not know this, but I can tell you it's a fact, the parties are now having increasing difficulty in finding people to stand as councillors because they don't feel that it's a, you know, it's a worthwhile job and, and all that sort of thing. Um, so it's a bust system, and it, it leads to the, um, the process we've now got where people... Come, I mean, basically, members of parliament have become sort of semi-councillors. You know, that's what's happening, and it's wrong. The second row here on the front, this side... Take the microphone. The microphone's coming. First of all, I just want to say I think the outline that you gave us is absolutely first class and your plans. So I can only say congratulations. And I, for one, I'm sorry, my name is George Manningcroft. I should have said that. I apologize. <coughs> so I think the outline you gave was first class and looking into the future. That's what we are all about in simply saying, how do we deal with the future? And from my point of view, one of the most important points that you raise, two things, decentralization, 
and the other one is skill. And that is one of the things that we lack. And that is when we look at Europe or whatnot, skill, skill, skill. I can't repeat it enough. So it is not what we have at the moment. It is how we affect the change. And what you laid out is absolutely first class. And I only hope in this hall here that the plan that you have can in fact be done and one of the most important things that you raise is decentralization. Mm. That is absolutely key. And the more we can decentralize, the more we can actually bring enthusiasm into the population. But the price is skill. Mm. And that is learning, learning, learning. And we're not doing it. Well, it, George, it's very good to see you here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He, he is one of our most distinguished bankers, so we ought to, we ought to, uh, he's a good banker, that one. Um, but but, um, but it, it is, it, 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 look, sometime towards the end of the Victorian era, people started producing reports saying the British education standards were not up to the standards of Germany and America. They've gone on producing those reports decade after decade, and the, the figure I think I gave you, that if you look at the latest Ofsted figures, there were 491, or oh, it's 471, 471, I think, think schools in this country, which are simply not producing the standard of literacy and numeracy that the modern world is dependent on. Um, Michael Gove is, in my view, pioneering a revolution and, and, of course, incurring all the criticisms from the entrenched education establishment, um, but he is doing it absolutely rightly. But let me, when we come to skills, well, the skills budget, which is £4 billion a year of your money, is not in the Department of Education, it's in the Department of Biz. That's, well, I never remember what Biz stands for, but it's business and something or other. It used, to be, <laughs> it used to be the Board of Trade, and it was the DTI when I was there. But anyway, it, that's, there's four billion a year of your money in the Biz. <laughs> and uh, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, that's, that's a whole heap of money. And that money is allocated to the colleges of further education in order to deliver skills. And then the department, my department, it tells the College of, Sed of, of, of um, Further Education how they can spend the money, what courses they can provide, what skills they've got to do, what the targets are, and all that. That's decided in London, in Whitehall. If you take the cheapest fare you like out of London and you talk to the employers, they are tearing their hair out because they can't get the skills they want from the colleges of further education. Uh, they've got the jobs, they know where the vacancies are, they've got ideas about what the future will be, whether it's in the public or private sector, and they, there's a mismatch between what they believe they need and can offer jobs for and what Biz says the Department of the Colleges of Further Education can train. My report says quite clearly, put it up for competitive bids. 
let the LEPs, the local enterprise people, including the local authorities, the public sector, let them determine the nature of the training and the skills that are available because they're the ones who've got the jobs. But it's not rocket science. It's blooming obvious to me. And it's obvious but hugely frustrating to every local area I've been to over the last 10 months. They're absolutely speechless. Um, so that's just another example of how centralism hands over to um, civil servants and ministers the decision to make judgments about what skills ought to be in Manchester. Well, I mean, you, you, you can't believe it. I mean, how can anyone design a system which says that London knows what Manchester needs? At the risk of seeming to impose centralized authority. <laughs> Here we go, then. I, I'm going to dictate that I believe that Lord Heseltine needs dinner, and you all need to offer him a round of applause. <laughs>